We ask that you please rise for an opening prayer. O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, O Good One. Good evening again. On behalf of the Orthodox Christian Fellowship and the Orthodox Chapel of the Transfiguration at Princeton, we welcome you. It is a distinct honor and pleasure to greet and to introduce our distinguished speaker, His Grace Bishop Callistos, back to Princeton. For not only did His Grace deliver the inaugural Florovsky Lecture at this university chapel nine years ago, Timothy Ware is a Princetonian, a graduate student here in the late 50s in the Department of Religion, who, like the founders of our Orthodox Fellowship, would make his way down to St. Vladimir's Church in Trenton for services. Now a preeminent educator and scholar, prolific writer of spiritual and historical works, translator and editor of critical liturgical texts, spokesman lecturer of world renown, revered archpastor of a very diverse flock, Bishop Callistos is indeed a father of the contemporary Orthodox Church. Your Grace, welcome back to Princeton. Ispalaiti Despata. This evening, friends, we are here to consider the vocation of Christianity, Eastern and Western, now that we stand on the threshold of the 21st century. Let us first reflect together for a few moments on the Christian significance of time. There is a folk story retold by Lev Tolstoy entitled Three Questions. In this story, the hero has to find out the answer to three questions. What is the most important moment? Who is the most important person? And what is the most important task? As in stories of this kind, 
he has various adventures before eventually he finds the answer. What is the most important moment? The answer is, the most important moment is always the present moment. The past has gone. We cannot change it. The future is not yet here. It does not lie in our power. The only moment of time over which we have control, within which we can act creatively, is the present moment, now. And the answers that he has to the other two questions are similar. Who is the most important person? The person whom I am talking to here and now. The person who is before me at this very moment. And what is the most important task? The most important task is the task on which I am engaged at this very present moment. So we may say that in our Christian understanding of time, we should put particular emphasis upon the present moment, now and here. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. There is a story told of one of the early Orthodox missionaries on this American continent, St. Herman, the Hermit of Spruce Island. One day, a Russian vessel anchored in the bay opposite his cell. And Father Herman was invited to join the officers on board the ship for a meal. In their conversation, they began to speak each about what was most important to them. Some of them said, the most important thing is for me to get promotion to become commander of my own ship. Others said, the most important thing for me is to return home safely over the thousands of miles that divide me from my family so that I may see my wife and children again. Finally, they turned to Father Herman. Forgive me, he said. To me, the most important thing is this. From this day, from this hour, from this moment, let us love God above all. Notice the immediacy of St. Herman's appeal. 
We are to love God, not in the indefinite future, not at some other time. We are to love him now, at this very moment, from this day, from this hour, from this moment. If we think of the way in which Christ began his public ministry, we can see exactly the same emphasis upon the supreme importance of the present moment. As recounted in the fourth chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, Christ goes into the synagogue in the town where he is known from his childhood. He goes up into the reading desk. He takes the scroll. He reads words from the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He finishes the reading closes up the scroll. All eyes are fixed upon him. All are waiting to hear what the new prophet will have to say. And how does our Savior begin his public preaching? He begins with the word Today, today, he says, this scripture is fulfilled. Today, now, these are the chief words that we Christians should use in our understanding of time. The desert fathers of Egypt used to say, there is a voice which speaks to everyone up to the last moment of their life. And the voice says, today. Time for the Christian means the present time. Now, but there is another word which we Christians use when we are thinking of the meaning of time. And this is the word keros, meaning opportunity, the decisive moment the moment for action. In fact, in the text which I quoted earlier from St. Paul, behold, now is the accepted time. The word for time there in Greek is keros, nin keros evprostektos. Now is the moment of opportunity, says St. Paul. And we use this word keros, opportunity, 
right at the beginning of the divine liturgy. Unfortunately, in a phrase that is usually not heard by the people. When all is ready for the Eucharist to begin, the deacon comes up to the priest to say to him, it's time to start. But he doesn't actually say, it's time to start. The phrase that the deacon uses is, it is time for the Lord to act. In many translations, this is not properly translated. In many versions of the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, the words are rendered, it is time to start the service to the Lord. But in fact, the best translation of these words, which are a quotation from Psalm 118 or 119 in the Hebrew and Protestant numbering, these words mean it is time not for us to do something, it is time for the Lord to act. The Eucharist, in the true and deep sense, is not our action, it is the action of the Lord. And the word that we use when we say it is time is, it is the keros. What we are saying at the beginning of the liturgy, if only we heard these words of the deacon, is now is the moment of opportunity to liturgize, to offer the holy sacrifice to the living God. This is to seize the keros, to seize the decisive moment, to be gathered creatively into the here and now. Keros, the moment of opportunity, means the moment when clock and calendar time is intersected by eternity. The moment when the age to come breaks through into this present age. So then, this evening, let us apply these words now. Today, it is the keros, the moment of opportunity. Let us apply these words to our situation on the threshold of the 21st century. What are the things that we should be thinking about chiefly in our Christian theology? in our living out of our spiritual teaching, in our prayer. In the 19th century, sorry, in the 20th century, emphasis was given chiefly by Christian thinkers, Orthodox and non-Orthodox, Eastern and Western, to the doctrine of the church. What is the church here for? What does the church do 
which nobody and no one else can do. What distinguishes the church from a youth circle or an old people's club or an ethnic society? And the answer given by many thinkers in the 20th century was the church is here to celebrate the Eucharist. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the service of communion in the holy body and blood of Christ. This is the unique and distinctive action of the church. This is what the church does, what nobody and no one else can do. The church is not to be thought of in legal or political terms. It is not to be envisaged as a power structure. The church is a Eucharistic organism which becomes itself through the celebration of the holy mysteries. Christian unity is not something imposed from the outside by power of jurisdiction. It is something created from within through the celebration of the divine liturgy. That was the answer that many Orthodox gave to the question, what is the church here for? It was the answer given in the middle of the 20th century by the Russian theologian Nicholas Afanasyev. And then some years later, by the Greek theologian still alive, Metropolitan John Zizioulas of Pergamon. A similar answer was given by Roman Catholic thinkers, such as Henri de Lubac. These people said, if we are to understand the essence of the church, we can sum it up in two short phrases. The church makes the Eucharist and the Eucharist makes the church. The 20th century, setting at the forefront of its vision, the nature and mission of the church, has been a century much concerned with the quest for Christian unity. And obviously, our understanding of the church is central in such a quest. What kind of visible society did our Lord Jesus Christ intend there to be? I do not think we have come to the end of our exploration of the doctrine of the church. An Orthodox associated with this town, who came to live here in the 1960s, and remained here until little before his death in 1979, was 
Archpriest George Florovsky. And he certainly is also a theologian of the church. I am honored to be invited to give a Florovsky lecture, for I knew him personally. I honor his memory. It was he who inspired my, all my work in Christian and Orthodox theology. And he says very rightly, the doctrine of the church is still, and he uses a German phrase, he liked to use foreign phrases, the doctrine of the church is still im Wenden, in process of formation. The doctrine of the church is not so much something given to us as a task for us to pursue. And that remains true 30 years after Father George's death. But I believe in the 21st century, in Christendom both Eastern and Western, the chief emphasis is going to alter. I am no prophet, but if you asked me, what will be the chief focus of attention in Christian thinking, spirituality and prayer in this new century? My answer is, it will be the Christian understanding of the human person. Not so much ecclesiology as anthropology. Who am I? What am I? The answer is by no means obvious. The bounds of the human person are very wide. We reach out of space into infinity. We reach out of time into eternity. And we have the gift to interact with other human persons. Perhaps the deepest mystery of all, next to the mystery of God, is the mystery of what it is to be a human being. Now, my reason for thinking that this will be of crucial importance is twofold. First, we have seen in the last quarter of the 20th century an enormous advance in medical knowledge. And we are confronted as Christians by a wide range of urgent problems in the realm of bioethics. A little time ago in Oxford, my home parish in England, we had a half-day conference at which we invited medical experts to tell us of some of the pieces of research in progress and some of the possibilities which would soon become realities. And they spoke of such things as, of course, cloning, 
but many other issues concerning birth and death. And almost every one of the new points that they raised, the new things that were becoming possible, are things which present a challenge to our traditional Christian moral teaching. If we are to respond to all these questions posed to us by the rapid advance of medical knowledge, then we need a much firmer, much more clearly articulated theology of what it is to be a person. We need to understand more clearly what we mean by Christians about the relation between body, soul, and spirit. We need to understand more clearly what it is to be made in the image of God. And these are questions which certainly we Orthodox should not try to explore on our own, but in cooperation with other Christians. But I have a further reason to stress the importance of the doctrine of the human person. We have witnessed in the second half of the 20th century throughout the Western world a tragic breakdown in community, in human relationships. I spent a good deal of my childhood in the city of London. And then, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, London was a safe city. You could go day or night, almost everywhere, without fear. In 1959, I came here to Princeton as a graduate student. Soon after my arrival, I went up to New York, where I was going to stay the night. And first, I went to have dinner with some friends. It wasn't so very late. It was perhaps 10 o'clock or half past 10 when I got up to go. And they said to me, how are you going to go back to your hotel? And I said, it's quite a pleasant evening. Perhaps I shall walk across the park. They said to me, nobody in their right senses ventures inside the park after dark. But I, as a child, walked in the parks of London without any fear. Well, I said, I'll take the subway. Don't do that, they said. You shouldn't travel in the evening alone on the subway. We shall order a taxi and you go straight to your hotel and get out of the taxi and go straight inside the hotel. I was amazed that in a capital city 
of a highly civilized country, it should be dangerous for citizens to walk alone. I was amazed that there should be such fear. This simply was not the situation in Europe at that time. But now things have changed. We, in Britain, have become just like you. And probably London is now a good deal more dangerous than New York. But is this not extraordinary? With all our Western civilization, we cannot make our cities safe for people to go about their legitimate tasks. And why are they unsafe? Because we have lost a sense of community. Because we do not care about others as brothers and sisters. Because we have lost with those round us an I and thou relationship, to use the phrase of the Jewish thinker Martin Buber. We treat each other as objects, and therefore we fear each other. Some time ago, I was told a story about a man who went to see his psychiatrist. The psychiatrist said, you lie down there on the couch and tell me your story. I find it easier to listen to you if I don't see your face. So I shall sit behind this screen and I will listen to what you're saying. The man started talking. After a time, he grew suspicious. It was strangely quiet behind the screen. So he got up from the couch, tiptoed across the room, and looked round the screen. And behind the screen, he saw a chair. And behind the chair, a door. And on the chair, there was no psychiatrist sitting there. There was only a tape recorder. However, that didn't worry the man too much. He'd told his story many times to psychiatrists. He'd got it all down on tape. And so he put his tape recorder on the couch and turned it on. And then he went downstairs across the road into the coffee shop opposite. And who should he see inside the coffee shop having a cup of coffee <laughs> but the psychiatrist? And the psychiatrist said, Look here, you shouldn't be down here. You should be upstairs telling your story, and my tape recorder will be recording it all. Oh, that's all right, said the man. My tape recorder's talking to your tape recorder. <laughs> this is the sadness of what has happened in the second half of the 20th century, so often we no longer communicate person to person, face to face, but only through tape recorders, through email. We sit bowed in front of our computers, but we do not see the face of our sister and our brother. So, for these reasons, I believe, and for other reasons as well, we are greatly in need of a renewal of our orthodox 
and Christian understanding of what it is to be a person. What it is, moreover, to be a person in relationship. We need to understand personhood not as something closed in upon itself, but as something creatively open to others. And that means, as I see it, one of the urgent tasks in the here and now, the today and the keros of our orthodox theology is to relate the human person to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Do we think enough about the Trinity? What practical difference does the doctrine of the Trinity make to your and my daily life? Karl Rana says, with regret, that if the doctrine of the Trinity were to be erased as false, most Christian books about theology could be left exactly as they are. All the references of the Trinity could be removed and the author's argument would not be affected. I'm afraid that is often true, but it should not be true because the distinctive mark of us as Christians is that we do not believe just in one God as do the Jewish people, as do the Muslims. We are not just monotheists, nor yet are we polytheists like Homer and the ancient Greeks. We believe in one God who is also three. We believe in a God who contains in his mysterious being both true unity and genuine personal diversity. So what difference does it make to you and me, to the way we take the chair at committee meetings, for example, or the way we fill in our tax returns, that we believe in the Trinity? In the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil, we say, let us love one another that with one mind we may confess. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity, one in essence and undivided. So what is the connection between mutual love and faith in the Trinity? God is love says St. John, 1 John 4, 8. But self-love, the love of one turned inwards, isolated, is not the fullness of love. Love signifies the presence of another, of a thou as well as an I. Love means exchange, mutual self-giving. 
Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is a way of affirming that all this is true, not just of human beings, but of God himself. As the German theologian Karl Barth said, the Christian God is not a lonely God. God is not just one person loving himself. God is a communion of three persons loving one another. From all eternity, there is an unceasing movement of mutual love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which the fathers call perichoresis. From all eternity, there is a dialogue the first person from all eternity says to the second, You are my beloved son. And from all eternity the second person replies to the first, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And from all eternity the third person seals this interchange of shared love. God is not just personal, but interpersonal. God is not just a unit, but a union. As Metropolitan John Zizioulas says, the being of God is relational being. Without the notion of communion, of kinonia, it is scarcely possible to speak of God at all. Now, we are made in the image of God. That means in the image, first of all, of Christ, the divine Logos. But it also means we are made in the image of God, the Trinity. As Charles Wesley says in one of his hymns, you whom he ordained to be transcripts of the Trinity. God is love, says St. John, and that great 18th century prophet in England, William Blake, completed the idea by saying, man is love. God is not self-love, but mutual love. So also is the human person made in the Trinitarian image. The being of God involves from all eternity a threefold I and thou relationship. So also we humans discover ourselves in a relationship of I and thou. God as Trinity is exchange, mutual self-giving, perichoresis, so also is the human person. The being of God is relational being, so also is human being. Here then is the connection between the doctrine of the Trinity and mutual love. As persons, and this is what I believe we must explore more and more deeply in the 21st century. As persons, 
We are what we are only in relation to other persons. There is no true person unless there are at least two persons, or better still, three, in communication one with another. Expressed in the simplest possible way, the practical significance of the doctrine of the Trinity is this. I need you in order to be myself. That is the idea of personhood that I hope we shall explore in the decades to come. And not just think about it, but live it out. That, to me, is our keros, the challenge before us at this particular moment. L'enfer, c'est les autres, said the French philosopher Sartre. Hell is other people, and it often feels like that. But surely T.S. Eliot in the cocktail party saw more deeply into the truth when he said, what is hell? Hell is oneself. Hell is alone. The other figures merely projections. Hell is not other people. Hell is myself, alone, refusing to relate. Hell is not to love anymore. There is a story told of Saint Macarius of Egypt. One day he was walking through the desert and he saw by the roadside a skull. He tapped it with his stick and asked, Who are you? And the skull replied, I was once a pagan priest. Where are you now? asked Macarius. And the skull answered, I am in hell. What's it like there? said Macarius. And the skull responded, This is the nature of our torment. We are bound two by two, back to back and we cannot see each other's faces. There is surely a very striking expression of what is meant by hell. Not to be able to relate, not to be able to see the face of the other, not to be able to love. And that means in the end, the loss of all joy, all meaning, all personhood. In Greek, the word prosopon means countenance, face. I am only truly a person if I face other people, if I look into their eyes and let them look into mine. 
At the beginning of the modern era, in the early 17th century, the French uh, thinker Descartes took as his fundamental principle cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. But that is surely a very mean and meager view of what it is to be human. The human being is not just a machine for thinking, for reaching logical conclusions. Would it not have been far better if Descartes had taken as his starting point not cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, but amo ergo sum, I love, therefore I am. Or even better still, amor ergo sum, I am loved, therefore I am. In the words of the great Romanian theologian Dimitris Danilawe, insofar as I am not loved, I am unintelligible to myself. This is the understanding of the human person seen in the light of the Holy Trinity that I would like us to explore. We are still living under the shadow of the tragedy on the 11th of September. And we are all asking ourselves, what is our answer as a Christians to this? And there are many different kinds of answer, obviously, which could be given. But my answer is, in the end, what we have to do is each to understand more deeply what it means to be a human person in the image of the Trinity, created for mutual love. We have to go back to basics to essentials. We have to renew our sense of wonder, of awe, of reverence before the Trinitarian mystery of our own person. I fear very much that the event of the 11th of September stands as a kind of signpost at the beginning of this new century. And to me, the only answer is to know ourselves as transcripts of the Trinity. St. Seraphim of Sarov said, Acquire inner peace, and thousands around you will find salvation. That is what we must do in the end if we are to respond adequately to the different conflicts which divide the world. For example, the conflict seemingly without solution in the Holy Land, conflict focused in these last days and weeks 
on the city of Bethlehem. We each need to be more deeply in touch with our own personhood, with our own interiority. And there, in the depths of ourselves, we can discover the image and likeness of the Trinity. There we can discover inner peace from which alone will come true healing. That is a very partial answer to the question, what is our keros? What is the moment of opportunity that confronts us? What is the here and now in which we should be dwelling at the beginning of this 21st century? But to me, the heart of our vocation in the new century, the new millennium, lies exactly here. To renew a sense of what it is to be a human person. And through that renewal, to bring fresh hope to international relations, fresh hope to the current environmental crisis. We speak of a crisis in the environment when we speak of ecology. But actually, the real crisis is not in the environment around us. It is in ourselves. The real crisis, then, is in the human heart. We are treating the world around us in a cruel and inhuman way because we are treating ourselves and each other in a cruel and inhuman way. Because we have lost all too often an understanding of what it is to be a human person after the image of the Trinity, we are polluting the earth. We are making the water impossible to drink. We are making the air foul and poisonous. So we need to go back to the roots. Who am I? What am I? After the image of God the Trinity. I need you in order to be myself. And one last word. Perhaps we do not have very much more time. Let us not think that if we do not address the urgent problems in the world around us, problems of peace between nations, problems of the pollution of the environment, perhaps the 21st century will not last very long. So, it may well be there is not much more time. There's a story told of three demons who were completing their course in the subterranean university. And they appeared for a final examination 
before the chief demonic professor. And the examiner, the professor, said to the first demon, what will you tell them when you go up on earth? And the first demon replied, I shall tell them there is no God. Oh, said the chief demon, that's not very interesting or original. They've been told that many, many times already. The difficulty is far too many of them know him personally. So he turned to the second demon and said, what will you tell them? And the second de demon replied, I shall tell them there is no hell. Ah, said the examiner, that's more ingenious. But the trouble is too many of them are dwelling in hell already. So he turned to the third demon and said, what will you tell them? And the third demon replied, I shall tell them there is no need to hurry. There is plenty of time. Excellent, said the examiner. Go up quickly. Start work at once. And I fear this demon may even have visited Princeton and other parts of New Jersey. Perhaps there is not much more time. In the prayer of St. Ephraim, which we Orthodox say during Lent, we pray, Give me not a spirit of sloth, a spirit sometimes it's rendered of laziness. That is our difficulty. We put things off. The devil says to us tomorrow, but the Holy Spirit says today. So let us not put things off. Let us dwell intensely in the present moment. From this day, from this hour, from this moment, let us try to learn better what it is to be a human person, a living icon of the Trinitarian God. Thank you. Your Grace, we thank you sincerely and are ever grateful for your most edifying, thought-provoking, and we hope inspiring words. May God grant you many, many years of health and good works of spiritual enlightenment, which will continue to benefit us all. We thank you all for coming. 
And as you leave, we ask that you consider a donation, a collection at the rear of the chapel, to be used toward the Father John Turkevich Memorial Scholarship Fund. Father John being the Orthodox chaplain here at Princeton for a quarter of a century. Finally, I believe it would be appropriate in this period, which is still a Lenten period for we Orthodox, to close with the prayer mentioned by His Grace in entirety, the prayer of St. Ephraim the Syrian. Please rise. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. But grant rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love unto thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own transgressions and not to judge my brother. For blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you.